You're listening to the Demos Events Podcast. Demos is a progressive public policy research and advocacy organization based in New York City. To learn more about Demos, please visit demos.org. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dennis Smith, a member of the faculty at the Wagner Graduate School of Public Service here at NYU. It's my pleasure to welcome you here this evening and to salute you for showing up for this public debate on Wisconsin and New York, question mark, politics, policy, and public, public interest. Uh, I'm a big fan of debate. I was a debater in my youth and continue to find debate a useful tool in teaching students about public policy. This week and next week, my students in the introduction to public policy are debating issues before the Congress of the United States. Um, I should point out that um, our name of our school resonates with uh, issues around the topic of tonight's discussion. The name Robert F. Wagner is indelibly linked to the issues of union uh, in America. Uh, not the, the mayor for whom we're named, but we kind of take advantage of all the Robert Wagners, uh, father, the senator, and Bobby, the, the son, who was a very distinguished public servant. And all of them, I think, shared a real commitment to the values of unions. Uh, we're also the site, NYU, of, of the famous Triangle Fire, and there's going to be an announcement about an event uh, that relates to that at Wagner coming up. Um, I myself um, am a Madisonian, and that doesn't identify me with what happened in Wisconsin, but in my own beliefs about the politics in the United States, I am uh, a believer in Madison's observation about the inevitability of factions, that if you have a complex society, there are going to be groups of people who have different interests in a, in a free society, they will pursue those interests and they will sometimes clash. Um, so the inevitability of faction was, was the premise of sort of the political theory that has guided my own work. Uh, and, but he said that we need to, if we accept the inevitability of faction, which he said was, I think his, his phrasing was that um, liberty is to faction as air is to fire. Uh, so it's inevitable. Uh, but he said that the, the challenge of government is to design arrangements so that these factions can be controlled and that the public interest can be served by the interactions of these different interests. And I think that that is what we're going to discuss and debate tonight is how do the unions and the politics of the unions, policies about public unions, uh, fit into our effort to serve the, the public interest. Uh, an elusive concept to be sure, and I, I hope that uh, our speakers will frame for us what they mean by the public interest as is stated in the title of this debate. Our debaters are well uh, prepared to bring, take on these issues. Um, my colleague now, Professor Richard Brodsky, uh, I knew him also in his role as Assemblyman Richard Brodsky, where I'm a professor in residence in the New York State Assembly program. He's been there a lot longer than I. He was there for um, 14 terms, 28 years, and uh, I don't know how he did that since he's only 40, but um, he led important policy initiatives while there, and I got to watch him in action and now get to see him in action teaching students at the Wagner School. Uh, he's a graduate of, of uh, Brandeis and of Harvard Law School, uh, went into government at an early age, and uh, recently ran for attorney general, statewide office. Um, so he has been debating issues in, in that assembly body, and now since leaving uh, government in a lot of other fora, including a debate in Albany about this very issue, uh, which is on the web. If you, if you don't get enough tonight, you can see more of that there. Um, and other issues, state, state uh, uh, budget on, on debating issues of um, uh, Indian Point. So he's a big believer in the use of debate in trying to shape uh, understanding of public issues. Uh, Professor 
Daniel DeSalvo, who is a, a fellow at the um, Manhattan Institute and a, a professor at City College of City University, uh, addresses issues of public policy, political parties, uh, and public unions in his work uh, as a teacher and as a researcher. Um, like uh, he has those two roles at uh, Manhattan Institute and professor uh, at, City at City University. Richard Brodsky also has an affiliation with Demos, which is one of the sponsors, along with the Wagner's uh, Policy Alliance, uh, of this uh, sponsors of tonight's uh, program. Uh, we're going to ask Daniel DeSalvo to go first and sort of make the case uh, why Wisconsin, in effect, and what is its relevance to New York State. And Richard Brodsky will then answer that. They each have about 10 minutes to for their opening uh, statements and then a brief period of rebuttal. I'll ask them some questions, and then you'll ask them some questions, and I think we'll have a lot of fun. Daniel, you're on. Thank you very much for that kind introduction. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here tonight. I'd, I'd like to thank the, the Wagner School, Demos, and uh, Richard Brodsky for inviting me to participate in this, this public debate on what surprisingly or maybe surprised the country became such an important issue. Most people probably had never heard of or never even thought much about collective bargaining uh, before the events of Wisconsin. So I think the first thing to think about is why Wisconsin? And that is because, in a sense, the Great Recession has hit the nation especially hard economically. Unemployment is in double digits for the first time in 30 years. Eight million Americans lost their jobs. The consequence was that this has, in some sense, put us into a position that I think is a moment of major social political and economic transition. And it's in a sense called into question uh, the ideal of the social welfare state in the United States and whether it's tenable in the long run, fiscally and administratively. And Wisconsin, I think, became a touchstone for many of these anxieties about how the welfare state is going to work, how it's going to be shaped over the long run. Because the Great Recession, in a sense, brought to the fore the fact that as soon as the economic downturn occurred, states were immediately confronted with this crisis. They were confronted with it because people lost their jobs, people needed unemployment benefits, people were suffering, the state needed to step in to provide much greater services, meaning it cost the state a lot more money. At the same time, of course, the state is taking in much less money in tax revenue, since there are fewer people able to pay taxes at the same rate. So in this tight fiscal situation, and maybe it's fitting that we're here at the NYU School of Dentistry, most state governments have had to go in for what is now we could probably call a lot of root canal politics, meaning it's unpleasant. Nonetheless, we could say that, well, even if the recession, in a sense, highlighted these difficulties of decreasing revenue and increasing state commitments, that isn't the only explanation for why the recession was so hard on state finances. Because, in part, a big reason why this recession hit states so hard, especially states like New York and California, was because before the recession, 
states and state legislatures and governors proceeded with, a, a sense, a lot of fat budgets. There was a great deal of public spending, and then they were hit with, in a sense, a big recession, and the, uh, their optimistic budget predictions hit a wall. So just to take New York State, for example, between 2003 and 2008, New York State's economy grew by about 5.6% 5 5 annually. Tax receipts grew at about 9% per year as a share of the state's economy. Personal income tax grew by 10% a year. And personal income tax in New York State constitutes about 60% of the state's budget. State spending at the same time grew by 7% a year. So in some, if you have a rate of spending and taxation that outpaces economic growth, you're pretty much on an unsustainable fiscal path. And partly this sustained, in a sense, a generous, in comparison to other states, social welfare state in New York. The U USA Today just reported uh, a few days ago that New Yorkers get more in government aid per person from social programs <coughs> than residents of any other state. So the worst fiscal problems, in a sense, hit the states that going into the recession had uh, bigger fiscal problems to start with. So this then turned to what to do in, in light of this recession. And this goes to the issue of what was driving a lot of this growth in state spending and growth in state taxation prior to the recession. And one of the big drivers, in my view, is public employees unions. These are a relatively recent phenomenon on the American political landscape. Most people across the political spectrum well into the 1950s opposed the creation of unionized government workers with collective bargaining rights. This is great liberals like FDR and even the head of the AFL-CIO, George Meany, opposed the creation of public employees unions because they believe that collective bargaining in the public sector would lead to too large a delegation of state sovereignty to unelected entities, mainly the unions themselves. And the unions have been strong proponents of defending their members who are state employees. I myself am a state employee and a member of a public employee union. So they push for more salaries, better benefits for their members. That's their purpose but they have a number of advantages over other interest groups insofar as they have immediate access to politicians through the collective bargaining process that other interest groups don't have. Second, they don't have to engage in a great deal of fundraising since in Wisconsin and in New York, the union dues are collected by the state, which frees up administrative overhead for more political activity. And third, they have an immediate constituency that's easy to mobilize for protests, for letter-writing campaigns, and for pressuring politicians. The result is that over the last 30 years in many states, public sector unions have become enormous political powerhouses. In that sense, they're very different entities from private sector unions, and they're very different entities from other interest groups. As a result, in the midst of this crisis, it's been very hard for states to renegotiate where they are on taxing and spending and in their fiscal situation because of the prior commitments negotiated through the collective bargaining process, which is why collective bargaining is now an issue not just in Wisconsin, but limiting collective bargaining rights has even come to democratic states like Massachusetts and heavily democratic cities like Detroit. 
The second big driver, I think, of why this crisis hit the state so hard was the system of pensions and health care benefits for public employees. Most public employees in the country and in the states have defined benefit pensions, which, while if adequately funded, are perfectly fine, the problem is that insofar as they define a pension benefit for someone and then work back to figure out how to fund it, and then use pension benefits, how they perform in the markets, to fund those pensions over time, they are susceptible to very high short-term risks, meaning if the stock market goes down, public, that is the government, in this case the employer, is on the hook for still paying the same amount of pension benefits that they promised. So in the short run, the defined benefit pension structure leads to big demands on the taxpayer at the time in a recession when they can least afford it. And then on top of that, I think turning is public employee health care plans. Many public employees can retire as early as 50 uh, for uh, people in the protective services like police and fire, and states provide a health care plan that covers them until Medicaid kicks in. And in some cases, the state health care plans also cover their Medicare premiums, as well as what's called Medigap, which is anything that Medicare doesn't cover. And these are huge commitments both the pension and the health care. Just take New York City, for, an, for example. The average pension today for uh, retiring police or firemen is $73,000 a year. And we have in the city 10,000 police officers uh, under 40 collecting pension benefits. When, when life expectancy is nearly 80 years, that's a huge commitment of the state for the long term. Now, that's not to begrudge people that have put their lives on the line for what they deserve or don't deserve, but it's a question of what is ultimately affordable or sustainable when 80% of the people who work in the private sector, 80% of workers in the private sector, don't have nearly as gen generous retirement benefits. Now, the public employees' unions and their defenders will often say, well, the average pension in New York State is only about $30,000 a year. True enough, that doesn't seem like an enormous sum. Why get all worked up about $30,000 for an average pension? Well, the reason is that that figure is deeply misleading in the sense that it covers all, everyone who's ever worked for the state, including people who worked a very long time ago when pension benefits weren't as generous, and people who worked for the state for a very short time. The second statistic that is often cited by defenders of the current pension schemes is that it's only a small percentage of most states' budgets, meaning 4 to 5 percent. But when one considers how much of state budgets are already committed payments, meaning committed that the federal government mandates, Medicaid's spending, for example, or bond payments, the actual discretionary amount of the budget is really small, and that 4, 5 to 10 percent is a lot bigger. And beyond the, so and then moving from the pension and health care liabilities, that the states have not funded. We'll move on to the last structural problem that I think plagues New York, Wisconsin, and a number of other blue states, which is their tax structure. Many people say, well, let's get out of this uh, recession crunch. Let's tax the rich more. Well, the problem here is that New York State is already heavily dependent on the incomes of the wealthy. And for many of the wealthy, their incomes fluctuate heavily with the stock market. Again, so. 
you know, look, if you're making over $500,000 a year and your stock portfolio goes up and down, it's not changing your life. You're fine. But for middle class, uh, the middle class who depends on public services, this is a big threat because, in a sense, the state's tax revenue goes down and then they can't afford the basic services that middle class people depend on. The same is true for pensions. You have to spend out more money in pensions. You can't spend the money on things that middle class people rely upon, whether that's education or health care. So I think this tax structure for states like New York has put them in a bit of a bind because this tax structure is extremely vulnerable to short-term shocks. I think as a result of these structural problems of tax structure, unfunded liabilities, and the out-of-whack relation that's come about due to the rise of public employees' unions, states are looking at novel ways that they wouldn't have considered to reform. And states like Wisconsin that act first in reform, I think, will do better by their middle class, meaning not just the middle class that works for government, the 20%, but also the middle class, the 80% that work in the private sector. And I think anyone that seriously cares about the state of the middle class in the long run has got to be concerned about these structural problems inherent in state finance of both the tax structure, unfunded liabilities, and public employee unions. I'll turn it over to Richard. We'll probably disagree with everything I just said. Before my eight to ten minutes begins to run, let me take a moment to thank Wagner, which is an extraordinary place, named after an extraordinary person, whose commitment to public uh, process is illuminated by this commitment to this. And I want to especially note the presence of Neil Kleiman. Where's Neil? Who is a special assistant to the dean, uh, who's been an architect of this. At Demos, a left-wing think tank, for those of you who aren't afraid of reality, um, which is headquartered in New York and is uh, increasing its presence, which is also co-sponsoring. And David Callahan, a senior uh, fellow at uh, Demos, two senior fellows, is also with us, and I appreciate that. I want to recognize the presence of Assemblyman Andy Hevesy from Albany and Queens, who is a, an outstanding participant in the public process. I want to recognize Wanda Williams, the political director of DC 37, a public sector union, and Joe Mayhew from CWA, who are here as well. Now, uh, I am grateful to Dan DeSalvo for his commitment to public process. We are a society that has shied away from debate, especially true on my side of the issue. The right has developed a set of arguments, uh, nostrums, prescriptions, and slogans that have caught on. And the absence of a counter to that has been extremely damaging, not just to those of us who share progressive values, but to the country itself. And for some time since my uh, leaving uh, public, the public sector, uh, I have tried with some success to create fora for these kinds of debates. Now, I can't match Dan DeSalvo with respect to numbers. Well, I'll try, but I'll try later. The conflict that Wisconsin uh, shows us is a conflict of values. It's a conflict of vision. It's a conflict about the kind of society we want. And it expresses itself in the policy disputes that we're going to discuss tonight. But it also expresses itself in 
a consequence of the dominance of the right in the public discourse for the last several years, which is they own the vocabulary. And if you listen very carefully to my distinguished friend and opponent, you heard words like welfare state and fat budgets and not to begrudge and generous pensions and pension schemes and tax the rich more and reform, a litany of words that have successfully in public process defined what is before the nation and the state for decision, and which are charged, and I do not accept them, and one of the reasons I'm here is to reclaim the debate and the vocabulary for a more fair and balanced, do I dare? <laughs> or at least a more represent, a representative set of words to describe the reality. Part of the reason they're winning is they own the words, and that's going to stop if I have anything to say about it. Now, Wisconsin has been the expression of not just a, the consequence of a recession. Most of us and most governments and lots of corporations are broke. And in that environment, spending less is one of the ways you deal with that. And if all this represented was the notion, you know, right now we can't afford to do this stuff, then there'd be a much, it'd be much easier to come together around a remedy. But that's not what they're doing. They are taking this reality and using it to change the rules of the game. And the game has, for some time, said that democracy is not restricted in American society to partisan elections. We believe in democracy in the workplace. We believe in democracy in academic institutions. And the struggle that they are engaged in, which I think they're going to lose, is the struggle to deny set of people, different sets at different times, a bunch of things that have been taken for granted as the rights of an American citizen. The right to bargain for your terms and conditions of employment strike many in this nation as an essential element of what people in Tunisia and Egypt are fighting for. And the differences between Dan and I are not limited to an analysis of the numbers. They're limited, they're, they're focused on what kind of an America we want. America became the envy of the world in the post-war years because we went out and based upon the New Deal created a middle class that was the majority of the nation and which allowed average Americans to participate fairly and, 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 and well in this vast economic machine that produced so much. The issue then was not just the size of the pie, but the size of the slice you got. The debate that they want to focus on is the size of the pie, and somehow it doesn't matter how we divvy it up. The policies represented by Wisconsin are an intentional, fundamental attack on middle-class America. And if adopted as the policy of governments, will have the effect of accelerating 
what's already the truth, which is that the concentration of wealth in this nation is the great fact that we must confront as we manage the economy and society. One percent of the of people of the country control 35% of its wealth. That is such an egregious change from the American tradition. And it has such consequence that to leave that out of the debate or to adopt the policies which will accelerate that concentration strikes me as beyond anything that is good for this country or this state. The fact of it is that the government, in partnership with the private sector, is what has produced American wealth. And the demonizing of government as impinging on the liberty of the people, or in somehow ruining the economic health of the nation, cannot stand scrutiny. In the end, the choices that we'll make about whether an employee at the DMV or a public health nurse makes a decent living will define what kind of society, what kind of streets we walk through, what kind of uh, uh, communities we have. It is a time for the billionaire. And we recognize our moral responsibility to the poor. Who then will speak for average middle class people struggling to, find, to, to pay for tuition, to get to and from work, to uh, enjoy whatever health care can be provided. And the drive to privatization, privatize Social Security, now out of Wisconsin, privatize Medicare, privatize services which have been the hallmark of the comfort levels of, of, of the middle class of this state, this city, and this nation are in danger. I leave you with this. We will now begin to focus on the elements of the crisis. And whether you agree with me or disagree with me as to what the remedy may be, please address at least to yourselves and in your, your public capacities what kind of a society will emerge from a society where workers can't bargain, Reproductive rights are taken. Environmental uh, 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 regulations are eliminated. Public health, access to public health is diminished. Because that, in the end, is what Wisconsin is about. The Tea Party is not about pensions and public employee benefits alone. It is a social vision of the nation and our relationship to each other that will, in the end, kill the American dream rather than save it. Thank you. Professor DeSalvo, you want to say a few words of response? Uh, sure. Is this, you can hear on this? Yes. OK. Uh, I guess I'll just pick up with the the point about uh, collective bargaining rights in the in the public sector and as a term or category. Um, you know, it's it, I think it's important to note that 
while we say collective bargaining rights and rights is a, an important buzzword in American politics, uh, if one hears, oh, someone's rights are being taken away, we think, well, my God, we're going back to the Jim Crow South. It's going to be just horrible. But I would say collective bargaining rights, in a sense, have, aside from the word rights, have almost uh, nothing to do with civil or constitutional rights. Um, if we look at across the United States, 24 states either permit no collective bargaining for public employees or allow it only for certain classes of workers like usually police and fire. Now, so you have 26 states, a slight majority, have collective bargaining laws covering most government workers in their states. And even if Wisconsin's reform makes it through the legal battles that it's trying to, it will remain in that category. That is, they will still have full collective bargaining rights. The subject of those collective bargaining negotiations will simply be limited to wages and will exclude health care and pensions and uh, government and work rules. So I think, and it's also fair to compare this to the federal government, which for the most part does not have collective bargaining rights for its employees. And um, in some sense, the... Wisconsin reform puts uh, Wisconsin much closer to where the federal government is. And in this sense, I think it's important to note, too, that these collective bargaining rights have a major impact, and one of the reasons people are interested in trying to reform the relationship of the states to its workers is to, in a sense, give taxpayers, and especially middle-class taxpayers who depend on services, from the state, a better bang for their buck, more efficient and effective services. Part of the problem that many critics of public employee unions have pointed out is insofar as they negotiate detailed work rules, they reduce the efficiency and productivity of government while increasing its cost. So for, for example, uh, economist from Northeastern University, Barry Bluestone, has shown that between 2000 and 2008, the price of state and local public services increased 41% nationally compared with just 27% for private services. And in this sense, the power of public employees unions to shape what government does, in a sense, makes it very difficult, for example, for government to ever fire even incompetent employees. And many people are probably familiar with the infamous rubber rooms of New York where 800 teachers were paid not to work. Or, for example, in the first decade of the 21st century, the Los Angeles City School District spent $3.5 million to get rid of its 33,000 teachers and succeeded after a decade of getting rid of five. So it's these barriers to efficient and effective government that make people think that some kind of reform has to be dealt with. Um, so I think the other larger point I'd just say in response to, to Richard's comments um, and to his eloquent remarks, is I'm, I don't think that we can separate the economic facts from the values that we share at the abstract level of values. Both Richard and I, I think, are for a strong and powerful middle class and a dynamic and growing economy with a compassionate government that blunts the edges of market forces. That's very nice to say. But until you get down into the weeds of the numbers and of the fiscal realities that states and cities face, you're not really engaged in a serious debate.
I had hoped to turn to the numbers, but I think we're being most productive when we examine the value distinctions that inform this debate. Rights, the collective bargaining rights versus collective bargaining privileges, which is the essential difference in, 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 in attitude. The, the unspoken element of this is that where public employees do not have the right to strike, they are also denied a fundamental human right, which is the right to strike. We believe that we should have, as human beings, the right to withhold our labor if we choose to. That right is denied to public and sector employees across the board. So these collective bargaining laws were developed in a sense of fairness. Okay, you can't strike like you could in the public sector. They want to privatize everything but the right to strike. If we grant collective bargaining rights, if we deny collective bargaining rights to workers, Dan, would you allow them to strike? They, are you, do you want me to answer yeah. that now? Well, I think that if you deny uh, the right to strike, we have another procedure that's already in place under collective bargaining, which is binding arbitration, which, as Coleman Young, former mayor of Detroit, said, well, for Detroit, binding arbitration is worse for cities and states than actually letting them strike, in the sense that, if, just so everyone knows what binding arbitration is, meaning if both sides public employees unions and their government employees can't, uh, employers can't come to an agreement, they have to go to a binding arbitration, which gives them, an both the union side, a strong incentive to hold out till the last minute and keep their high offer with the expectation that an arbiter will basically split the difference. I'm not sure I understand. Are you saying that where a public employee is denied uh, collective bargaining rights, they should be allowed to strike? I'm saying if, well, I'm just saying under current procedures, you have a, a, a mechanism that in a sense compensates for the denial of the right okay. to strike, which is binding arbitration. Respectfully now, and gently, I'm not asking that question. Sure. I'm asking well, the I'm question. against the right to strike in the public sector because I think it's a compromise of state sovereignty. Fair enough. You can't strike and we're not going to let you bargain. If you, if, if, if you brought that uh, posture to the main square of the city of Cairo, they'd boot you out of town right now. That is the value-based distinction which we need to carefully consider. Now, as to Dan's uh, uh, insistence that we examine the numbers, he's absolutely right. As to his argument that there are abuses, he's also right. And no one on my side of this equation has ever said that the current system, as constructed as operated is perfect sometimes it's not even good and sometimes public sector unions are on the wrong side of a public policy issue sometimes I am and not so much <laughs> but that's not the basis upon which you change fundamental values and it's certainly if you're going to start dealing with the numbers, you start seeing some things that are scary. In New York, the top 1% control 32 income, make one-third of the money. They pay 24% of the taxes. 
if you're a middle class person making between 56 and 95,000, you have 15% of the gross income, but you pay 17% of the taxes. Go back to Dan's reference to my view that we should tax the rich more. Hell, I'll settle for taxing them more with what we used to tax them. The times of greatest prosperity for the nation and the state have been when there were marginal tax rates infinitely higher than we have now. And the decision in New York that was made this year wasn't to add taxes. The, the proposition was not let's raise taxes on the rich. Let's not give them a tax break. Take a look at Wisconsin. What Wisconsin represents is that same theory. They cut the earned income tax credit. I'm sorry. They removed it and lowered it for working and low-income people. And they increased tax breaks for multi-state corporations. There is a philosophy behind the numbers. And it is a philosophy that goes back to Alexander Hamilton, which was that an authoritarian state acting in the name of the rich and the powerful will in the end produce a society that is more recognizable, fairer, better. Hobbes, John Hobbes, John Hobbes? Thomas. Thomas, Thomas, Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes. I knew that. I knew a John Hobbes. Thomas John Hobbes. Locke. John Locke. Thank you. <laughs> I'm new to academia. Yeah. <laughs> Said that, and I think he described the position of the right in America. Life, liberty, and property. And we needed a state to preserve them. The great genius of the American Revolution, Thomas Jefferson, took that and tweaked it. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that fight between Je Jefferson and Hamilton, with all the defects of Thomas Jefferson, what America is facing today. The you know, do, is the, should the marginal tax rate be 6.8, 7.2, Should we end civil uh, uh, state support for civil uh, indigent legal the system, which is what they're doing in Wisconsin? It's all of a piece, and it isn't conservative. These guys aren't conservatives. Why would, if you, if, why would you be for conserving the, the, the wealth of the top 1% and not conserving the natural environment if you were a conservative? They are social reactionaries representing the interests of the moneyed classes. You know what? It's America. They got every right. There is nothing inherently offensive to me about people having a social and political philosophy that contains those elements. But where I can name it for what it is, I will do so. And I will also say that if they do prevail, the consequences to average citizens will be unpleasant and the consequences to the nation will be disastrous. Can I uh, ask each of you a question? Um, I'd like to ask Professor Salvo, you mentioned that you're at a public university, you're a unionized faculty member. Um, I just heard hearings up in Albany where people from City University and the State University were describing an absolute decline in the relative uh, level of support for education that has been experienced by the State and City University. But you make the case that public unions have special access as an interest group, and so I'm curious, What's, you know, what about City University and where you teach 
you know, are, is extravagant? What, what, what would you propose that the, the government has been too generous in in its support of your university? And I'd ask um, Professor Brodsky, you know, you were a member of the State Assembly for 28 years as we celebrated earlier during this period when we had these fat budgets and over-expenditure. What would you say in defense of that charge? You didn't answer it in your earlier uh, comments. So, Daniel, maybe you first? Sure. Um, a, a couple remarks. To my own union, um, curiously enough, I don't follow my own union especially closely. I think the difficulty is that these things are highly uneven in what unions get in which sectors. Let's take, for example, in New York State, so I don't have a particular example of city university professors being grossly overpaid. They aren't. Roughly pay scales for city university professors are roughly equivalent with other public uh, institutions across the country, and that's slightly below what people make in the private sector. One reform that our, the union fought and actually lost was to continue defined benefit pension plans. Before everyone went into a defined benefit pension plan at City University. So, for example, when I came in, you actually had a choice, and you could have a defined benefit plan or a defined contribution plan. So, in this particular instance, I can actually think of something where they lost and didn't win. But that's not to say that I think we have to look across the board at many other examples. I think one of the biggest examples in New York State is, for example, New York State pays 25% more in Medicaid spending than Texas and Florida combined for no better health benefits, partly driven by a, one of the most powerful public sector or quasi-public sector unions in the state, which is 1199 SEIU. I think, and I think that I'd just like, while I have a quick second to respond to just a few things that Richard said, which was that this notion that collective bargaining rights are a fundamental human right is belied by the fact that a number of states don't have them. States that receive some of the best marks for performance by the widely respected Pew Center on the states. This includes Virginia and Utah. And even if you took away, went further than Wisconsin and took away collective bargaining rights entirely, public employees unions would, or public employees and as organizations would still be powerful actors. No one's saying they shouldn't or couldn't continue to participate in politics to organize themselves into associations, which was the situation before collective bargaining rights were instilled in the 60s and 70s. They could still give donations to politicians, um, but in this case, they wouldn't. it wouldn't be a closed shop where everyone in a bargaining unit had to pay dues. They would have to organize and gain financial support from their members, just like every other interest group, whether that's the Sierra Club or the NRA throughout the country. Um, I guess I'll leave it on that. I was scared when he wanted to bring Wisconsin to New York, but Florida and Texas? Um, the, 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 the states that have prospered, including places like New York, are the high investment states. They're the states that have strong economic, physical, and human infrastructures. The, 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 to hold Florida and Texas up as paragons of what New York should be. That's not at all what I said. It struck me that they were, we were, if you weren't speaking of then approvingly, then I misunderstood. It sounded like we were making a mistake and they were doing well. I accept the correction. But I will say this, the reason New York's health expenditures are greater is because we chose to make available to the middle class long-term health care benefits. Now, we may not be able to afford that. 
but it is not uh, a function of public sector unions driving wasteful spending. It is a function of a decision about the social fabric you, you, you want to you wanna have. I suppose I must answer the question you asked me um, with respect to the, <laughs> to the state budget. Um, the growth in spending that took place over the last years was large and in many cases probably larger than they should have been. But they were accompanied by a dramatic cut in taxes, especially to the wealthy. If we had maintained the marginal tax rates of four or five years ago, we wouldn't have this problem. And no one is going to convince me that an 8.5% marginal rate or a 9% marginal rate is going to have some terrible effect on the economy, even though they tried to say that. Jersey raised its marginal rate to 10.5, something like that. Nobody left the state. People come to this area for the quality of life. And this race to the bottom, cut taxes for the rich, reduce the public infrastructure, reduce public services, impoverish public education, impoverish public universities, although it has a political expression, that is, lower taxes, has in fact just transferred wealth. And whatever mistakes I made or were made about expenditures are correctable. But the solution is not on that side of the equation alone. It requires us to re-examine the question of who pays for public services and why. Take the subway system. What enables real estate moguls to be moguls is that they have in this city a transportation system that gets their employees to those locations for very little money. And those locations, therefore, are highly sought after by employers. Yet we have starved that system. We are re-entering the, the, the cycle we entered into in the 60s and 70s where we're not making the capital investments in that infrastructure. You know, it's interesting. If you listen to the business community in New York, Kathy Wilde, the distinguished leader of the New York City Partnership, she'll talk about investing in airports and investing in, in, in mass transit and investing in, in, in the commuter rails. There is no economic or social difference between a solid physical infrastructure and a solid human infrastructure. And at the same time, we're hearing from the right how much you must reform schools. We're hearing about a fundamental attack on teachers and their compensation. You can't have it both ways. If we're going to deal with the expenditure side, we can, we should, we, we have to reduce spending in, 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 in key areas painfully. We should not do it because the spending has been wasteful and we're all of a sudden catching on. I love Governor Cuomo, but if you listen to him, they're cutting waste and fat. They're cutting muscle. And there will be a consequence to that over the course of time for the economy of the state and the social infrastructure of the state. You know, we have a great audience here. I want to get them into the conversation. Will you identify yourself when you uh, pose a question for our debaters? Who wants to go first? Yes, sir. Who are you? heard from Professor Salvo that there are half the states don't have the same kind of uh, bargaining rights and position that, that Wisconsin is, is, is changing. And so, you know, it, the idea that it's a universal right seems to be questioned by that. 
but it was also connected with the argument that unions are the reason we have these financial problems at the state level. And Mr. Stiles pointed out that those states that don't have those uh, same uh, union arrangements are having serious fiscal problems too, maybe even worse. So what's, what's the story? I think that's an excellent question and a very perceptive one. What I tried to suggest in my opening remarks was that there were three interrelated, you could say interconnected structural reasons for the, this problem. Some states suffer from all three, say California, which is in some ways in a class by itself in its fiscal difficulties. Um, New York and New Jersey also suffer from all three and have great difficulties. But the other two are present pretty much across the board in other states, meaning the high reliance of the progressive tax code and the way that it makes it very difficult in economic downturns for the state to raise revenue. And of course, the unfunded pension liabilities. So I guess I don't want to mislead and suggest that there's some single cause or that uh, in many way, I think all three of those factors are present in why the states are suffering from such big fiscal difficulties. And of course, the recession itself, many people have suggested um, that uh, public sector unions didn't cause the recession. Well, of course they didn't. I don't know anyone who's serious who argues that. Um, the recession, as we all know, was caused by a housing bubble, which had many complex causes, uh, from the uh, shenanigans on Wall Street to uh, sovereign wealth funds to lots of complex global things that led to very low uh, credit, which spiked the housing market and then led to this bust. But once that happened, then these other three things that I'm suggesting all kicked in in interrelated ways that made states have lots of problems. And yet, the remedy that is being most powerfully talked about and that dominates the debate is let's screw the workers. <laughs> so, if I, I we're talking not by fair rhetorical move because. If we're talking about workers, you have to think about both private and public sector okay. workers. And no one is out there trying to say, well, we're trying to screw the workers in the private sector. This is about state government relations. And only a quarter of or a fifth of all workers in the country work for government. I, I accept the correction. You already screwed the private sector workers. Now we shift the focus back over to the well, public I, sector. I appreciate workers. the ad hominem attack that well, somehow well, no, 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 let me, uh, I'm related to all let, these let, larger let, forces. Let, let me, let me, I, I was um, actually going to address that. Because yeah, I, if, you if, should. If, if, if my attack was perceived as ad hominem, I apologize. I didn't intend it as such, and I don't really think it was. What you hear from Dan is a very open, thoughtful, and inclusive um, expression of the problem. And I admire that in his uh, uh, presentation. It was a complex uh, uh, set of problems, and th that matters. But the subject before us tonight is Wisconsin. And you are, for better or worse, the proponent. And my point is, that if you look at the social philosophy that underlies it, it goes well beyond the reasonable concern for numbers that you have presented. And it would be destructive of the public discourse and not good for the nation or the state if we did not recognize that we were dealing with something of a reactionary movement which embedded in it has this interesting and powerful discussion about 
the role of public and private sector uh, lawyer uh, unions. The, the, the fact of the matter is that it is the public sector unions that have borne the brunt of the political fallout from a recession they didn't cause. And that in and of itself should give us pause. It doesn't mean that you're not right with respect to the other things that have to be looked at. But let's not kid ourselves. They're getting the stuffing kicked out of them politically all across the country for a, 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 an economic and social situation which, of which they are the victims, not the cause. Other questions? Yes, sir. You are? I appreciate that. Hopefully I'll, uh, I'll be able to answer them sufficiently. Um, certainly on the first, I think, you know, the big difference is um, as far as dictatorial regimes and, um, and union rights, I think anyone, uh, myself included, if we're thinking about unions in the private sector, whether it's coal miners or carpenters or plumbers, it's a, it's a much different analysis. It's a much different story. And certainly th those rights, uh, for the most part, are preserved under a national law, uh, the Wagner Act, fittingly, um, and for the most part are, are not being challenged at, at the national level. Some states have, have gone so far, I couldn't say that I support those efforts. So when we're thinking about labor relations, it's, I think it's really essential to distinguish the public and the private sector because they're really two different animals. And of course, I think you know what those regimes did to private sector unions in their countries was indefensible. Um, on the difference between the closed and agency shop, uh, you'll, I guess, forgive me for the slip of the technicality of the term, but I would just make one correction. In fact, you, in an agency shop, you still pay the full union dues, and only if you exercise a clawback provision can you get back the money that was used beyond the collective bargaining uh, funds. In that sense, you have to, if you're say a member of a collect of a union or not a member, and you want in an agency shop in New York, you have to then each year say, well. Actually, I disagreed with the political spending or the other activities of the union beyond what it did as acting as my agent in collective bargaining, and now I have to exercise this procedure. Otherwise, you pay in the same amount as, as everyone else. Uh, let's examine this distinction between public and private sector unions as to why, as a matter of values, they, there ought to be a distinction. Well, I can see two arguments. One, that the public is served as Calvin Coolidge that great uh, progressive thinker said, there is no right to strike against the public interest. Well, it, 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 it has a certain superficial appeal. The problem is that in a society this integrated, everything is affected by the public interest to one degree or another. I don't care if it's the, the steel worker strike in 1948 or, or elsewhere. I just don't see that having removed from these human beings the right to withhold their labor, that we have any ethical alternative but to provide them with a system that allows for bargaining. In the end, the critique of the right about collective bargaining in the public sector is that the government officials are either stupid or corrupt in the way they have negotiated the contracts. Let the other side do a better job negotiating. That's what negotiations yield and the virtues of the system will in the end, I think, allow us to see amelioration of some of the abuses you mentioned without uh, affecting the 
the principled values that I think need to be preserved. Well, it's an excellent question. It, in some ways, goes a little bit beyond our theme because it then goes to national issues and the entire state of uh, the overall economy and it's the way it distributes wealth and resources. Uh, and certainly, income inequality has been growing uh, fantastically over the last 30 years. No debate about that, I don't think. Um, if you go a slightly below that number, you see, well, really, where is the real rise in income inequality? In fact, it's really at the top of the pinnacle. That is not even just the top 5%, but really the top 1% and even the top 0.1% is really what's driving the whole of economic inequality. If you look lower down, between the, say, upper middle class uh, tax brackets and the, work, and the working class, you don't see a huge spike in, so if we factored out the really the top, we wouldn't see as big a spike in economic inequality. What's driving that? An enormous number of complex factors uh, from immigration to technological change to increased uh, remuneration for skilled workers. Um, I think this is a, a difficult and complex problem. It's not clear exactly what government uh, can or should do about to correct the problem, and it's not clear that simply taxing and redistributing those incomes at the top end, this goes to federal taxation policy, um, is exactly the solution. I expect the marginal tax rate at the top will probably increase um, as part of some future budget deal, but I don't don't hold me to that prediction. I have I have no idea uh, whether that will actually happen, but um, there's certainly a case, uh, a case for it. Within New York, the income inequality is, a, is, as clear as I read before, real and subject to, to um, policy. It can be affected by tax policy. I was hoping for a, an answer from Dan that was clearer on the social and economic consequences of this concentration of wealth. It's staggeringly destructive of the American political and social system. And it isn't enough to talk about a marginal increase from 32% to 34% as though that would change the social consequences of this American elite, which now dominates the political system. I mean, I love Mayor Bloomberg, but it's yeah, nice to have 13. It hasn't been great for democracy. It has <laughs> not been great for democracy. I mean, the, 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 as to the relative size of government, I guess the answer is I'm not troubled by it because I don't see a paradigm for where it ought to be. It, it, it may be that it's too much now. That's, I, that, that's a, an argument that worth having. But it's not obvious to me that the growth in government meant a, 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 something was wrong. A lot of the growth you're getting is an increase in spending on health care and uh, education. I happen to believe in health care and education. I can't speak for Mr. DeSalvo. Oh, that was ad hominem. I, I apologize. <laughs> um, uh, the, 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 but if, if, the, if the question to me is, are we spending too much on health care? Well, I, I can take the question of the share of GDP that government absorbs and turn it into, well, what's it doing with the money? And if the answer is paying for more health care and paying for more education, that's what makes a prosperous society. Sir. Uh, I don't share those values. Okay. 
Um, but I'm not sure that we ought to be upset with the operations of the extremely wealthy merely because we disagree with their policies. I think the point you made, which I, I, I think is a more valid one, is this allowing a legal fiction to act as though it was a natural person. And that, I think, is a consequence of politics. And I think it is the single most damaging decision since Dred Scott. And the consequences of that are yet to be felt. But my personal distaste for the policies and practices of the two people you mentioned um, is would not necessarily change my view uh, if they were all George Soros's. That wouldn't be good either. Sir? Um, well, I use the term in a value-neutral, social science way, meaning I, simply the description of what, you know, the, most people in the mixed economies of Western democracies uh, are, is we have market economies with government regulation and some redistribution of wealth through various schemes at the national level, such as Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, um, and at the state level, uh, similarly corresponding policies um, that try to mitigate the harsh effects sometimes of, uh, of economic markets. So I meant simply as a welfare state, as a general description, of course, of you could say the full ideal of the welfare state as redistributive in a way that created um, much, much more economic inequality, uh, equality, you know, hasn't been realized in the United States, of course, and probably you could say hasn't really been realized anywhere, uh, with the exception maybe of the, you know, home of social democracy in Sweden, but it's really hard to compare the United States and Sweden. Sweden's a country of eight million people. It's very homogeneous, so it's kind of like comparing the United States to a suburb. Um, so I guess I was using it in, in that in that sense. Of course, New York State, you're right, has some of the highest uh, economic inequality uh, in the country, and this is in part 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 of its problem, as I tried to suggest at the beginning, is the reliance of New York State on tax revenue for the wealthy is actually something that's not so good in in short-term recessions for the middle class. Today, New York State tax revenue for the wealthy generates 43 percent of all state revenue. And Richard has mentioned, well, we should raise the marginal tax rate to where it used to be. The problem was no one paid the marginal tax rate before with all the exemptions and deductions. So in fact, wealthy people in New York State are actually paying, the top 1% are actually paying more of the tax burden now than they were in the past. And the trouble with this is that when the stock market goes down, insofar as wealthy people are very connected to the stock market, their incomes go down and their state tax revenue goes down. The state is then in a bind for how to fund all the important things that it needs to do to provide protection uh, of its citizens, fire, health, education, and so on. So that was kind of along the lines of what I was trying to, to suggest. Two quick observations. I think Dan is entitled to be taken at face value for the use of the term welfare state. But it does have echoes. And I don't think the dominance of the right in, in terms of control of the vocabulary is a guy named Frank Luntz who makes a living doing this. Figuring out what you, if you call it reform, you can kill anybody you want. Uh, 
and I, and, I, and I don't think Dan meant to manipulate the phrase, but it does have an echo, which I think in practical terms we ought to discuss. I, also, we're now at a point where we can look at the limitations of numbers. He's exactly right as to the consequence of uh, relying on upper income tax, pay, tax payments from upper income people at a time when the market gets hit. But the problem is that the reason they're paying so much is they make so damn much. And the fact of it is they are the only taxpayer group in New York. This is people who make over uh, 633000 a year who pay in aggregate state and local taxes a lower share than their share of the income. We are not a progressive tax state. We are a regressive tax state. And, whether, and if you and I would agree that we could modify the system, make it progressive and deal with the revenue side, there is actually a place where thoughtful people could come together on a remedy outside of the debates on Fox News and MSNBC. Well, if you use the word blame, I think you're right. I'm not looking to blame anybody. I just want a society that's fair and in which people pay enough to provide the services we as a community think we need, which is the opposite direction from which public policy has been going. The concentration of wealth does not make the wealthy blameworthy. It means that the, the public, the government, has to find ways to balance competing needs in ways that it hasn't been doing. The, the, this notion that somehow a, a marginal tax rate of 8.5% New York is class warfare I mean, no one was yelling, New, New York, with its higher tax rate, has been doing better than neighboring states for the last four years. Tax rates do not have the stimulative or depressive uh, effects that I think your question implied. So if you use the word blame, I think you're right. If you use the word uh, creating a just and fair tax code and an efficient and effective tax code, I think you're wrong. I would just add, well, uh, just to slightly disagree with Richard on the, the last point, um, I do think tax rates do have an effect. Of course, a marginal tax rate increase can generate more revenue if you leave out a lot of deductions and loopholes. But, of course, many times you can raise the rate and cram in a bunch of deductions and loopholes, and it won't do it. I think the, the trouble for New York State is it has the overall, uh, the second highest state and local taxes in the country. Uh, upstate New York is... Uh, a basket case economically, uh, and in that sense, there's there's very little growth. The state uh, overall lost population over the last decade. It's losing two congressional seats, um, and in that sense, and I think you know even here in New York City, where we've gone the furthest in some sense with urban liberalism, uh, many Black Americans are who are have achieved middle class status are are fleeing uh, the state, and where are they going? Back to the South, to states like Texas and Florida. Um, where they see brighter economic prospects. Now, Texas and Florida may have all kinds of problems, and they may not be a model um, that we want to emulate, but uh, people are, uh, many people are voting with their feet um, as feeling squeezed on the one hand between uh, the very wealthy uh, and, in a sense, uh, the power of uh, many of these structural problems that I pointed to uh, between public employee unions, the pension uh, cost increases, and... Uh, the tax structure. So I think overall, New York is having a, a, a lot of problems in the sense that it's threatening to become a barbell state 
with a very small uh, but weighty wealthy group on one side of the bar, a very thin middle class in the middle, and uh, a large number of poor people that serve them on the other side. And I think that we, tax policy needs to be very attentive to how it can incentivize the creation of small businesses that are going to grow the economy, especially in upstate New York. You know, the uh, chickens that are coming home to roost were not chicks yesterday. They, they've kind of grown over time, and the big, big picture kind of factors that you put in the equation at the beginning uh, have emerged. It seems to me we had 12 years of a Republican governor, during which time we had a Republican Senate. So two or three main actors in state government uh, were Republican-dominated, uh, the majority. You as a political scientist and Richard Brodsky as a political actor, how did this happen during a period when New York was arguably dominated by Republican political actors? And what happened? The, the accumulation of commitments to expenditure and tax policy decisions that have created this torque now when the economy declined. Ask Gabe. Um, the, the, a lot of it was that there was a, a consensus to invest. You, the, the, the upstate economy that's the basket case is the low tax area. The areas that are booming are the high tax areas. You know, I, I just, I, I don't think we're going to settle tax policy today, except to say I don't think the party mattered as much in New York as it did in some other places. Did everybody hear what A. Blackman said that we had? Republicans who got their tax cuts and uh, Democrats who got their expenditure increases, and that was the bargain they struck. Yes. And as long as the, the economy was, was lifting up, they were able to, to do that. I, I would just add, I think the Republicans wanted spending increases and the Democrats wanted tax cuts. There was a conspiracy. <laughs> I see. Sounds like okay. a bipartisan consensus. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. Nobody's perfect. Um, but but I did you all hear the question back there? The question was, you know, we're talking about state of Wisconsin. Why aren't, as since uh, Professor Salvo points out, the federal government hasn't provided the uh, same sort of prerogatives to union members and so on, or to to, to act? It, uh, why hasn't that been the focus of issues, even when there was a democratic uh, polarity of the positions of uh, the both houses of the Congress and, and the presidency. I think there's a natural political answer to that is it's always more controversial when you're taking somebody's rights away than when you're maintaining a system that doesn't grant them that. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that the, the comparable policy should not apply. I think you're right. But I think what Wisconsin represented was a, an attempt to undo gains in the minds of some that were hard fought and hard won, uh, and, and that always excites more controversy. I might just add, I think there's probably very limited incentive to grant uh, collective bargaining rights to federal employees. Federal employees can join unions. Um, they don't have dues checkoffs and, and ag agency shops. Uh, but you have to remember that federal employees, uh, civilian employees, only constitute about 3 million workers. It's, uh, and in comparison to the states where you're talking much closer to 17 to 18 million workers, it's just a much larger pool. And the federal government feels that in many of its cases, it needs the flexibility. So when Obama came out and said, I'm imposing an across-the-board wage freeze, clearly if there had been collective bargaining, he would not have been able to do that. 
Um, and so that's the kind of flexibility that I think even Democrats at the national level, going all the way back, of course, to, to FDR, have felt like they needed that flexibility um, to be able to make managerial decisions. And that's been really the issue, I think, overall, the principled issue that many people have against collective bargaining is, in classic democratic theory, voters elect politicians who make decisions about public priorities. They then instruct uh, bureaucrats to carry those, those orders out. In the current arrangements at state and local level, voters elect politicians who then negotiate with unions about how, how and when and in what ways they'll carry those out and at what levels of compensation. Do you, you don't look satisfied. It does apply everywhere. It does. You're saying, why aren't they chanting in the halls of Congress? Why aren't they chanting in the halls of Congress? I ask them. I mean, the... The, 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 because it's always more dramatic when you take away someone's rights. It's true with issues of reproductive freedom. It's true on civil rights. When, when people finally gain a right, when they lose it, they fight harder than when they're trying to achieve it. That, I think, is the explanation. In recent times, it may also be a legacy of, of Ronald Reagan and how he dealt with the air traffic controllers union and so forth that may be viewed as kind of a, an area that's dangerous for people to t go to. It's, it's possible. Uh, other questions back here? Yes, sir. Well, I'll take that one. I mean, I think this goes to one of the bigger differences between uh, public and private sector unions, which is uh, in many cases in the private sector, if uh, one union organizes a company, there's what's called a threat effect. Other companies around them raise wages to match where the union has set wages where they were able to organize. <laughs> It's not at all clear to me on most of the economic literature that I've read that there's any threat effect uh, going in the opposite direction, meaning the state of public sector salaries has very limited, if any, impact on where the private sector sets its salaries. So even when uh, people unionized and gained collective bargaining rights in the 60s and 70s in the public sector, it had very little spillover effect on middle class wages in the private sector. That's my reading of the economic literature, but we'll have a test case if things play out in Wisconsin. I, I suspect there's another side to that in terms of economic analysis, which is that those jobs remained as things that people could go to if private sector wages fell too low. And I think that had a, an effect on uh, private sector wages, which is measurable, and we'll find out. I am, and I've never exercised the clawback provision. I have trouble returning clothes when I buy them, so I pay in the whole thing. Well, I talk to him pretty regularly, and I think he is, I think, in mourning in a certain kind of way for the loss of the community acceptance of the notion of collective bargaining as a uh, uh, as a way for American uh, workers to exercise their human rights. Um, he sings about it uh, and says some extraordinary things. So um, all I can do is uh, ask him the next time I see him and get back to him. Well, I guess um, first, in, in fairness to me and to whom would I wish to be fairer. Um, I haven't said anything about uh, larger, or I've tried to stay away from 
larger debates on economic policy um, nationally, um, national tax rates and so on, you know, despite being asked about it since that wasn't uh, my theme, um, or, and I've also shied away from saying anything about uh, bargaining, uh, collective bargaining and unionization in the private sector, which I, again, I think is a separate matter. I think your question comes back to, well, how much is the large concentration of wealth at the top over the last 30 years due to reducing marginal tax rates from top earners beginning under uh, Ronald Reagan? Uh, I think that certainly played a role in concentration of wealth at the top, but I far from think that that's the that politics and political decisions are far from the only factor. Um, the United States has undergone massive economic change as the world economy has globalized and American firms have faced competition um, from new and emergent economies around the world. At the same time, we've had, uh, you know, the third, the second or third, you could say, largest wave of immigration in the country. So I think that just chalking it up to uh, Reaganomics uh, and saying that that's what's uh, given middle class workers a uh, a raw deal and favored the wealthy, I think, is is part of this, maybe part of the story, but it's very, very far from the whole story. And there's a, just so much else that's going on that's in some ways outside of even the purview of politics that's really a larger discussion and question. I, I think he's right about there being other factors, but this is one of the factors we could control. And that it, it, we have voluntarily made it worse with our tax policies, even if there are these other uh, elements to it. And most importantly, when the stuff hits the fan, as it does in a recession, the response is not to deal with the concentration of wealth, but to nail the, the worker whose average salary is $40,000 a year. There's something un-American about that. Something about this event I want to clarify. How many of you thought this was going to go to 8 o'clock? How many thought it was going to go to 8.30? Some of you didn't know. <laughs> I just didn't want to hold you if you if we let you hear. I saw two different presentations. What's, the organizers, do you know we're going to 8.30 or 8? Well, we're going to go for another 10 minutes, and then we're going to be finished. So you have a question? I guess that's to me again. Um, <laughs> I'm with him. Um, I think the, the issue here is that um, I think there's two parts to your your, uh, your question, and they're both you know very sh uh, sharp observations. The first is... Um, to, to what extent does, do public sector unions provide some kind of counterweight to, uh, the power of corporations in um, American politics? I think it's, um, first, it's, it's not, most unions and public sector unions in particular are mostly concerned with their members. And that is achieving greater benefits for their members. To the extent that they're lobbying or doing anything for the middle class in the private sector is, uh, unclear. Whether they're, now they may want to do something against corporations, but it's unclear exactly what. At the same time, we say, well, corporations have so much influence and it's easy to create this uh, image in one's mind of a bunch of corporate fat cats in pinstripe suits sitting around a large oak table dividing up the world. Um, my reading of the literature on uh, business lobbying in the United States, uh, at least at the federal level, is yes, there's maybe a privileged position of business. But at the same time, businesses are often divided against each other's. Corporations have different interests and often lobby against each other. 
So it's not clear to me that uh, when we say corporations, we mean some monolithic and unified force out to get the, the working man. I think that things are much more complex and subtle than that. And this partly has to look at what are the, just imagine the different incentives of businesses that export versus businesses that import. They're often highly at odds over trade policy. So I think that one, we have to break down what we mean when we say corporations. Um, and we have to also look at what is it that public sector unions are really trying to, to achieve in the political arena. I, I, I really fundamentally disagree with Dan's characterization of the public sector unions. They clearly have an obligation and care about their members. But if you talk to the people who do those jobs, the home health care aides, the, 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 the environmental workers, they have a deep commitment to the public benefits that their employment brings to the society. They are not charged with a fiduciary duty to the stockholder to make as much money as they can make. And to characterize the um, public sector unions as merely the self-interested warriors for their privileged class, which is part of this rhetoric, is that's ad hominem. I didn't say that, so. Well, <laughs> I'm not so sure. I, you, you're, you're a skilled debater and you're an honest man, but I think an honest person listening to you could have taken that away from the description you gave of the public sector unions. As to the, it would be unfortunate, but it wouldn't but be you know, the case. I think, I think we began uh, this, this debate um, with your observation, Richard, that th there's a fundamental sort of issue of the values and the role of the state underlying uh, some of the, these, these specific things that are coming up. And so you have these wealthy people who come and they say, I'm just protecting low taxes because that helps the economy grow and that's, that's their belief, but they, by the way, benefit from it. And then, you know, it would be hard to square what, what, what Daniel Salva said about they're only interested in the wages. If you go up to Albany and you hear these, these testimonies before the budget committees, the people who come up there and argue in favor of services to the disabled, concern about uh, what's happening to our school kids in terms of the budget, uh, protecting the environment, they're the union members now. They may, it may be related to the jobs that they do, but they're getting $40,000 a year for those jobs, and the people who are defending the private, you know, interests, you know, the, the taxes as a way of promoting the economy are the millionaires and billionaires. So, I mean, self-interest should be accepted as an act, a feature of all the actors. And that was one of the fundamental insights of the founding fathers, and they designed a system. The question is, what are the policy outcomes we're getting as a result of these different uh, uh, distributions of power? And I think that there have been some, some really good arguments raised on both sides here. I think the audience uh, is not equally balanced. So I think Daniel has, has stood up to that nicely. Uh, I wish we had ways of getting audiences that were a little bit more mixed. And I think that Richard has been working hard to, to make that happen around the state and here in New York. And I want to compliment and commend him for that. And I hope Daniel will continue to join the FEI and we'll have more debates about these issues because I think they do help us try to wrestle these very difficult problems to the ground. So thank you all and thank them. Thank you for listening to the Demos Events Podcast. Visit demos.org to learn more about our work.